You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So this morning, we're going to start with a screeching stop. Okay, I need you to use your imagination for just a minute and try to get a sound in your head. To help with that, I want you to think back to uh, pretty much any Looney Tunes cartoon you've ever seen. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say Looney Tune cartoon? Think back to any of those cartoons and th- think to when a character is in motion. Think of someone like the Roadrunner, okay? The Roadrunner's in motion, he's running along, and when he comes to a sudden stop, can you recall the sound that's made? It's the sound of screeching tires, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? I need you to use your imagination and, and get that sound in your mind. This is actually one of the most common sounds in any cartoon. This happens in Scooby-Doo all the time. Anytime he gets to run and he stops, it's this sound. It's used by cartoonists and animators to embellish a character's movement, the character's emotion, the character's running along. And then when they come to a stop, there's the sound of screeching tires. I need you to think about that sound. And hold that sound, right? We get it? The sound of screeching tires. Hold that sound right here in your heads, okay? Got it? Now look down at Exodus 32 and play that sound. Get it? Moses has been up on Mount Sinai since chapter 24. From chapters 25 to 31, God has been giving him instructions for the tabernacle. And then here in chapter 32, while Moses is still on the mountain, the camera turns to the people down below the mountain, and it is the, it is the sound of screeching tires. The whole narrative gets interrupted here by a hard stop. And that's what we're going to look at today. And I want us to look at it with the sound of screeching tires in our heads, okay? There are two things I want us to see, two two points to this outline. First, I want us to see the reality of a sinful people. And second, the reputation of a holy God. It's just those, those are the two points. Over here, the people's reality, okay? Over here, God's reputation. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, in this moment, as we are gathered here with your word open before us, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to us in Jesus' name, amen. All right, the reality of sinful people. Now, I'm I'm saying the reality of sinful people because the sin of Israel here in this chapter is about more than just Israel. Exodus 32 is a false story of a nation in the same way that Genesis 3 is the false story of humanity. In this chapter... There are connections all throughout that go back to Genesis 3. In the same way that Adam and Eve disobeyed God and fell, Israel disobeyed God and fell. In the same way that we can look at Genesis 3 and learn about ourselves, we can look here in Exodus 32 and learn about ourselves. This chapter is meant to prove to us the faithlessness of Israel. It's meant to be a reality check for us on how incapable they are in themselves to trust God. And when we read here about them, 
It's like looking in a mirror. And what's especially fascinating here is that we just don't read about an account of their sin, but we get to see what God thinks about their sin. See, in verses 1 to 6, we see just what Israel did. We see their sin. But then in verses 7 to 10, we see God commenting on their sin. And that's going to be our focus, okay? Here's how I want us to set it up. The first thing to do is we're just going to walk through verses 1 to 6, and we're going to see as plainly as we can what's going on here. Then after that, we're going to look closer at verses 7 to 10 for the divine interpretation of what's going on here. So first look at verses 1 to 6. God is still speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. But meanwhile, off the mountain, verse 1, the people realize that it's been a while since they've seen Moses, and so they gather themselves together to Aaron. Now, that little preposition there, too, is is important. Are, Are they gathering themselves to Aaron, or are they gathering themselves against Aaron? What was the nature of this gathering? Well, the same expression here for this kind of gathering is used three other times in this section of the Old Testament. And in each, in each of those uses, the meaning of the gathering is hostile. It's important that we, we, we visualize here that this gathering, they're, they're not coming around Aaron for fun and fellowship, okay? They are, they're more like a mob that is coming against Aaron, shaking their fist, and they are making a demand of him, get up and make us gods. And so Aaron tells them to compile all their gold, and then he fashions it together, and he makes a golden calf. And then they said of this calf that he made, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Then in verse 5, Aaron builds an altar, and he says that tomorrow we're going to have a feast for Yahweh. And so in verse 6, on the next day, the people wake up, they make burnt offerings, and they have a slosh fest. There's enough here in verses 1 to 6, there's enough here already that we know things have gone sideways. This is a terrible situation. But then we have verses 7 to 10. So look at 7 to 10 here. A lot of what we read in these three verses is actually repeated from verses one to, in verses 1 to 6. It's just a repetition of what we've already read. But now this is from God's perspective. So we're reading again. This is what God says about their sin. This is God's commentary on Israel's sin. And there are three things that we learn here. And these are three things that are about the sin of sinful people. Okay, we're going to step out and apply this. This is about the sin of sinful people. The first thing to see is the sin of impatience. The sin of impatience. Look at verse 7. Yahweh tells Moses to, to leave the mountain and to return to Israel, return to the people down below the mountain because they have corrupted themselves. Okay, So how did they do that? Verse 8, God says, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Verse eight here gives us God's insight on verse one. When we see that the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. 
Now we know from chapter 24 that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. How long is 40 days? How, how long is that? What, what makes 40 days a delay? It, it depends on what we're talking about, right? If we're talking about 40 days for a goldfish, 40 days for a dog, are we talking 40 days for a do-it-yourself kitchen remodel? Or 40 days of waiting in line for a coffee, right? It, it depends on what you're talking about. Delays are relative. When it comes to our waiting for things, our expectations for how long certain things should take is formed by our experience and by what we've observed in those around us. We know, we know that 40 days in line for coffee is too long, right? 40 days for a do-it-yourself kitchen remodel? It's pretty good. We know that. It's from our experience and our observation. So how does that work for Israel then? When was the last time Israel was rescued by God's mighty hand after 400 years of slavery? Had Israel ever seen before an entire nation cross the Red Sea on dry ground and eat bread from heaven and drink water from a rock? Had they ever seen a mountain before that was filled with the glory of God like a consuming fire? No, they never seen that. This was the first time the universe had ever seen anything like that. And yet, Israel wants to know in chapter 32 what's taking Moses so long. In their minds, somehow, Moses is delayed. But from God's perspective, Israel has turned aside quickly. Do you see that? Do you see the irony in this? From God's perspective, which is the only perspective that really matters, he's not even finished giving Moses the law and the people have already broken it. Moses has been on the mountain away from the people for only 40 days and they have already canceled him which is why they want Aaron to make this image. It's because they decided that Moses was not coming back. Apparently there was some point along the way when they figured that they knew better than God and that their timing was the standard. And so what they're trying to do here is they're trying to hold God to their standard. They're trying to hold God to their standard, or really, they're trying to hold God to their preference. That is the sin of impatience. Now, when I say impatience, I'm, I don't mean eagerness. I don't mean anticipation. I don't mean any kind of faith-filled longing for something good. That's not what I mean. By the sin of impatience, I'm talking about when we try to hold God to our timing standard. 
when we try to hold God to our preferences rather than to trust him. That's what Israel is doing here, and it's consistent with the grumbling we've seen them do in the previous chapters, but now it's just gotten worse. This is the sound of screeching tires. And the second thing we learn here is the the sin of idolatry. There's the sin of impatience, but also the sin of idolatry. This is where we want to look closer at what Israel actually did. There's the temporal aspect of how quickly they turned aside from God's commandments, but how exactly did they turn aside? That's also in verse 8. Look at the the second sentence there in verse 8. God says, they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's, that's just the fact of what Israel has done. That's what we read about in verses 1 to 6. It is the sin of idolatry, which is a direct violation of the second commandment. So let's go back to commandment number 2, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. Just listen to the second commandment and have Exodus 32 in mind with that screeching tire sound. Exodus 20, verse 4. You, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Right along with the Sabbath commandment, which is number four, the second commandment is the longest of the Ten Commandments, most likely because the narrative anticipated that this would be the first one broken. That's the same reason why three more times between Exodus 20 and Exodus 32, this commandment is repeated. Idolatry was Israel's big temptation, and they just gave in right away. They didn't stand a chance. They they didn't even borrow this idol from from another nation. They they, they made it themselves. That's verse 8. God says they made for themselves a golden calf. And notice again back in verse 1 that their decision to make the golden calf was in response to the absence of Moses. This is important. It tells us a little more about how this idolatry works. Look back at the last part of verse 1. They say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, the word for gods in the Old Testament is often used to refer to idols. In the Hebrew, it's the word Elohim, which can be translated as plural or singular. Sometimes it's God's plural. Sometimes it's God singular. Sometimes it's little g God. Sometimes it's uppercase G God. The context determines which it should be. And sometimes it can just go either way, which is the situation here. In our English translation, it probably reads God's plural. But 
I think it should be God singular. Little g, God singular. Here's why. First, and I think the most obvious reason, is that the people wanted Aaron to make a little g God or an idol, and Aaron fashioned for them a golden calf singular. See? He made one calf. He made one idol. Because that's what the people, the mob, was asking for. Second, the second reason why the people wanted to make this little g god or this idol was they wanted a replacement for Moses. They wanted to make a god, a little g god, an idol, because Moses, the man who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, he's disappeared. See, with Moses out of the picture, the people needed someone to stand in his place. And the reason for this, in short, is because Israel was faithless. Remember the role that Moses has filled for the people of Israel. Moses was the representative of God. He represented God to the people. Back in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, the people were too afraid to answer God's call to fellowship. God called the people up on the mountain. He called them on the mountain to fellowship with him, but they were too afraid. They stood far off, and they said to Moses in Exodus 20 verse 19, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. See, they wanted Moses to be like God for them because they were too afraid, too faithless to have God himself. And so Moses took that role, but see, now Moses is gone. And with Moses gone, does that mean that we have to face Yahweh ourselves? Because the mountain is still smoking. They can see the mountain. They can see the mountain from which God's voice sounded and it scared the daylights out of them. They can see it and they do not want to face him themselves. They're too afraid. They're too faithless. They still need somebody in the middle. They need someone to shield them from God. And now that Moses is gone, they got to replace him. Hey, hey, let's make a new Moses. Let's make an idol. Let's make a golden calf. And let's say that this calf did what Moses did. This, this calf is now the new in-between who brought us out of the land of Egypt. You see what they're doing here? Faithlessness. Faithlessness. It's unbelief. Another clue, I think, that they're replacing Moses here is that in verse 5, the people hold a feast to Yahweh. That's confusing, right? They're still worshiping Yahweh. They're not trying to replace Yahweh. They're trying to replace Moses, which means they don't want to abandon God. They just want to control him. Hello. Meet idolatry. 
This is what idolatry is. It's not the wholesale forsaking of God, it's trying to control him. It's God on our terms, it's God in our way. We're too afraid to have God himself because he's too dangerous and too demanding and so we fashion together and we chisel out all these intermediaries to represent him because we want God to look modern and manageable. We want God to appear as something we can handle, something that makes us less dependent and less accountable. If you have a golden calf, you can live however you want because you know a golden calf ain't going to stop you, right? Faithlessness. It's just unbelief. It's unbelief. And it's not just Israel's problem, y'all. It's our problem. Like this, this is a problem in the room right now. It's that we're not, we don't want to abandon God. We just want to control him. God on our terms. God in our way. That is the sin of idolatry. It is the sound of screeching tires. And it leads to number three, the sin of syncretism. The sin of impatience. The sin of idolatry. And the sin of syncretism. Syncretism is the blending together of multiple things to make a new thing. And it's always, always the next step in idolatry because once you are in control, you have to enact some kind of system. And the easiest way to do that is to just borrow from what you already know. In verse 9, speaking about Israel, Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Man, I love that description. It's, it's visual, right? To be stiff-necked is to be stubborn. It's to be set in a certain way. It, it's to have, I mean, it's to have a stiff neck, right? It means that Israel is stuck in their sinful ways. And how this plays out is that they just, they revert back to the ways of Egypt. See, they're, they're stuck, you know? They're stiff-necked. They're stuck in the ways of Egypt. That's why they made the calf. Why not a bear? Why not an eagle? Why not a hamster? There's a lot of animals out there. Why a calf? Well, it's commonly recognized among Bible scholars and historians that in ancient Egypt, the way Egyptians represented their highest deity was through the image, through a statue of a young bull. Over the years and to this day, archaeologists have found in our finding several statues of young bulls in Egypt. In fact, just a couple years ago, the Minneapolis Institute of Art had an exhibit called Egypt's Sunken Cities. And one of the prized pieces of that exhibit was a statue of a bull. Right now, like this afternoon, if you were to drive to Cleveland, Ohio, and you were to go to the Cleveland Museum of Art at location 107 Egyptian, you'd see another bull statue from this time. Statues of young bulls were everywhere in Egypt at this time. And so Israel here, they, they wanted to replace Moses. They, they just copied what they had seen for the last four centuries. They had seen... For years and years, generations and generations, they had seen the Egyptians bow down to a calf. And so they thought, hey, Moses is gone. You just, you want to do the calf thing? 
You're just stiff-necked. We're, we're going to feast to Yahweh. We're going to make offerings to Yahweh. But let's, let's do it like the Egyptians. In fact, how much like the Egyptians can we be and it still count as the worship of Yahweh? Do you understand the question? We, we still ask that question today. How much of our world can we sprinkle in here and this still be Christian? How many of the world's values can we share before we cross the line and become something other than a Christian church? The question itself is syncretism. See, it is a non-Christian question because it's driven not by faithfulness to God, but by accommodation to culture. It's when we look around at the world and we don't want to be marked by our differences, but we want to be accepted by our similarities. God help us. This is a problem for us today, for churches today, just like it was a problem for Israel. It is the sound of screeching tires, the sin of impatience, the sin of idolatry, the sin of syncretism. Israel has fallen. It's clear. They've fallen. Now what? I mean, that is the question in Exodus 32. That, that is the question right now when it comes to the entire biblical storyline. Now that Israel has done this, what will God do? That's the question. So now we're going to talk here. The reputation of a holy God. We've seen the sin of a sinful people. Now, second part, the reputation of a holy God. Look at verse 9 again. God says to Moses, look, I've seen this people, which means he's fully aware of these people. He's not surprised. They're stiff-necked. He's seen the people. He knows. God knows they are incapable of being faithful to his covenant. He knows that this marriage is not going to work, and so he's ready to back out before the wedding. He wants to start all over. That's what verse 10 is. This is what Yahweh says to Moses in verse 10. Now, therefore, because they're stiff-necked, because they will be terrible covenant keepers, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now look how Moses replies in verse 11. He simply implores God not to do this. Oh Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Look at the end of verse 12. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Moses is not asking God to ignore the sin of the people here. He's not asking God to try again and make a new covenant. He is simply begging God not to destroy Israel. And he begs for this not on the basis of God's mercy, but on the basis of God's reputation. Look at, look at verse 12. Look at the text here, verses 12 and 13. If God were to destroy Israel... It would make 
two big suggestions about who God is. The first suggestion would be that God is evil. The second suggestion would be that God is a liar. Is he evil? Is God evil? Look at verse 12. If God were to destroy Israel, verse 12, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Remember now that Egypt had seen what Yahweh did for Israel. Back in chapter 14, after Israel had crossed the Red Sea, the Egyptian forces were thrown into a panic and they said, in chapter 14, verse 25, they said, Yahweh fights for Israel. The Egyptians knew that Yahweh was the one who saved Israel by his his massive power and his mighty hand. They knew that Yahweh was great, but is it good? Moses is concerned that if God wipes out all the people here that he just set free, the Egyptians will call this whole rescue operation evil. And Moses, when he says this, is probably speaking as much for himself as for the Egyptians because Moses here is still getting to know Yahweh too. There, there's more Moses will see of Yahweh in the next two chapters. But he's apparently seen enough now. He's seen enough by now to know that God is committed to the accurate revelation of who he is and that evil intent is not part of it. And so on that basis, Moses prays, God, please don't do this. To destroy the entire nation of Israel would send the wrong message about who you are. You are not evil. Is he a liar? Moses gives a second reason why Yahweh should relent from destroying Israel. Look at verse 13. Remember Abraham, verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. This is just straightforward here. If God destroys Israel, it means that he would not do what he said he would do, and that would make him a liar, and Moses knows Yahweh is not a liar. And so he reminds him, he just reminds him, remember what you said. Remember the promise you made to Abraham. This is a significant moment in the Bible storyline because it makes super clear to us that any forthcoming relationship that God has with Israel is not because of who they are, but it's all because of who he is. There is no illusion here that Israel deserves God or that anyone deserves God. At any point, God could have just wiped it all. He just could have wiped it all away. He could have ended the whole thing. So they know, and we know as the readers of this, we know that God is a promise maker, but is he a promise keeper? Moses knows that he is, 
and Moses knows that God is committed to the accurate revelation of himself, God is unswervingly committed to the display and the upholding of the glory of his name. God cares about his reputation. He cares about his glory. And so Moses appeals to that. God, please don't destroy Israel. To destroy the entire nation of Israel would send their own message about who you are. You are not a liar. You see this? It's clear in this passage. Yahweh is not evil. He is good. Yahweh is not a liar. He is a promise keeper. That is the confidence that Moses has when he prays. That's his confidence. That's what he's saying. Moses is not appealing to Yahweh's mercy, but to his reputation Moses appeals to Yahweh's glory. And then in the next two chapters, he will learn that Yahweh's glory is his mercy. We are in the mountain peaks of the Bible here. Yahweh's glory is his mercy. Chapters 33 and 34 come back next week, and the week after, and the week after, and the week after. This is the Bible. This is the Bible. This is the gospel. This is the truth about God. In Exodus 32, it's just the sound of screeching tires. It's the sound of screeching tires. If we keep reading in Exodus 32, we'll see that God hears Moses. He hears him, and he relents from destroying all of the people And yet he brings a reckoning. He brings a reckoning. The effects of sin have still tarnished everything, and it changes things. The people have committed spiritual adultery, and they drink the dirt water to symbolize their unfaithfulness. They have broken loose in the camp, and that's a phrase that gets at their shame. It's a play on words. It sounds like the word nakedness in the Hebrew, and it's meant to allude back to Adam and Eve after their fall in Genesis 3. Aaron is held accountable here. And what does he do? He shifts the blame, just like Adam and Eve, just like maybe you did in the last argument you had with your spouse, blame shifters we are. The Levites, they stood up. And they executed judgment. They served as the the Edenic cherubim, guarding the right worship of God. God does not sweep Israel's sin under the rug, but he he will visit it upon them. That's scary, okay? I want you to know this chapter ends in a, a scary way. God will visit their sin upon them. We're talking about the reputation of a holy God. A a holy God who dwells in unapproachable light and and blinding moral purity. He doesn't, there's no sin in the world ever that gets a pass. None of Israel's sins gets a pass. None of our sins gets a pass. None of your sins gets a pass. The judgment of God 
will come for you. The judgment of God will come for you. Or it already has. Do we understand the importance of the cross of Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 3 tells us that we, as sinful people, impatient, idolaters, syncretists, we, this is the best news in the universe. We, as sinful people, can be made righteous by God as a gift through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is because God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It means that instead of God's judgment visiting you, it visited Jesus. Instead of the punishment that we deserve for our sins from God falling on us, it fell on Jesus. He took that punishment for you if you would just trust him. And so look, right now, we're closing this thing, but I want to close with an invitation. If you're here right now and you've never put your faith in Jesus, would you do that? Would you trust him? The judgment of God is coming for you. But Jesus, Jesus is your savior. He is your substitute. Trust him right now. If you call on Jesus for salvation, he will save you. He will. Just call out to him for salvation and he will save you. And if you are here and you have been saved by Jesus, let's give him thanks now at this table. Amen? We come to this table each week as those who have been set free, as those who are no longer under the wrath of God, but who are the beloved sons and daughters of God. And we take the bread and we take the cup and we eat and we drink to say, Jesus, I receive you. Jesus, I belong wholly to you forever. And so this morning, if you're here and you would say that, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, if you know that in Christ you are a son or daughter of God, I want to invite you to this table. Enjoy this table with us. The body of Jesus is the true bread. The blood of Jesus is the true drink. Let us serve you.